This is the Human Action Podcast with your host, Jeff Deist. Well, tough crowd here. Tough crowd here. So my guest is Connor Mortel. He's been here all summer helping me with a variety of projects, with media, with podcasts, and especially with radio, old-fashioned AM radio, financial talk radio, which is one of our new projects. But uh, Dr. Bob Murphy is normally my co-host. I think he would say we were co-hosts. I, I, I guess we're co-hosts. Uh, but nonetheless, he's already on Jet at Home. So uh, we will be doing sort of an AMA-style format today because... As I've uh, told Connor uh, on multiple occasions offline, one thing I learned working with Dr. Ron Paul over the years is that uh, wherever he went, young people would come up to him constantly and say, what, what should I do? What can I do? That was always the question. It was about school or work or whatever it might be. So, um, Connor, I'm sure you, you've, you've met Ron. You know what I'm talking about. I have certainly heard that question asked this week by all our incredible Mises U students. And I know one of the one of the questions I've been seeing thrown around and one of the questions I'm sure you with Dr. Paul and Dr. Paul himself just got constantly asked was, what are some of the pitfalls that a young person, someone our age here, might make as they're trying to figure out what they should do with this? College. <laughs> um, you know, it really is a tough one because parents want their children to go to college. There's a psychology to it. And both baby boomer parents and Gen X parents like myself, you know, the idea that your child wouldn't go to college uh, and won't, you know, wouldn't be a professional is, is a little unsettling. So I think it's parents who are driving this as much as young people. But if you look at it honestly and, and do an honest assessment of the opportunity costs, a concept which you're all familiar with now, uh, of not only the money, but also the four years, and increasingly five years, six years, seven years over here at Auburn, um, you know, that's, that's a huge cost. And uh, so it's not always so clear that you should go to college. I know most of you are an undergraduate, uh, and there are certainly bright spots, uh, certain degrees, certain majors where people are getting good jobs. And there's certainly the types of professional training, whether we agree with it or not. I, I personally think professions like medicine, philosophy, teaching, law ought to be apprentice-type programs. I think that served us far better than the licensing regime which we live under. But there are certainly uh, professions like engineering where even undergraduate is, is necessary and sometimes graduate school. But I think there are a lot of professions for which it isn't. So uh, I guess the number one caveat is don't get into debt unless you really have to. And if you can take even your whole 20s going slowly and maybe taking classes at community college while you work to get to knock out those first two years, whatever you have to do, trying to get a scholarship, um, I think debt can be a real trap and it can set you on a course in life in your 20s where you feel compelled then to go into that profession for which you borrowed money. And maybe you don't like that profession um, there are people who spend their whole 20s in medical school. And we all know what a tough road that is. They have to take really tough chemistry and biology in undergraduate. They have to go through residency. They have to do a lot of late nights. And then they become a doctor. Maybe they're pushing 30 by that time. 
Maybe they have a whole bunch of medical school debt, which is oftentimes today $250,000. I mean, just insane amounts. And then maybe they don't like medicine so much. But you feel like you're, you're committed at that point because you've got to pay off the debts. Or maybe at that point you have a family, a mortgage, whatever it might be. So um, lifespans are longer, or at least they, they were getting longer up until the last few years. America's ma- managing to somehow uh, kill that. Um, and so that means our work lives will get longer, which means we'll probably w- be working well into our 70s, maybe 80s. So that stretches out your 20s in, in a certain sense. And so I guess uh, avoiding debt would be my number one in that. Right, and then off of the college thing, you and I talked about this a little bit before the show. I, a lot of our students here are looking at potentially master's degrees and PhDs. I've luckily taken your advice and avoided debt. I worked a few years before I went to get my master's, and I've worked while I had my master's. Do you have any advice as far as what they should do with these? For the, Most of the people here have already gone to undergrad. What about pursuing these more graduate degrees? Well, that's tough. I think in most cases, the answer is no. Don't do it. Uh, it there's a great debate on YouTube from Mises U a few years ago. Uh, the late Dr. Gary North versus Dr. Walter Block on whether you should get a PhD, and you should Google that. It's well worth watching. It's an excellent debate, and you have to understand, in many ways, given the glut of PhDs, given the job market, given the the, the vast array of useless fields, which not only do no good but often do active harm in academia. And also, given the, the, the growth in bureaucracy at these universities, you know, Auburn's got the same 30,000 students it had in the 70s. And it's got roughly the same amount of professors. But what it's got a whole hell of a lot more of is, is administrators, these, these vague people in the middle who make six figures. Uh, nobody knows exactly what they do, but they do. And uh, they do it all, you know, they, they like it. Uh, they're quite comfortable. And so... You start to look at that and you say, what are you paying for and what are you getting? Um, increasingly, just what used to be quite, a, quite an achievable career path was I'd like to be a professor, I'd like to get a PhD, and I'd like to have a tenured uh, job. You know, let's say you don't, you don't have to be Harvard or Stanford. I'd just like a tenured job at, a, at an average state university in my state. That's, that's a lot harder than it used to be. I mean, there are a lot of PhDs out there who are driving around between two or three community colleges to try to cobble together a living by teaching classes for which they're paid fifteen or $1,800 or something. Um, so it's very, very tough. And also, when you think of PhDs who have enjoyed very robust careers, who have published a lot, written a lot, achieved some degree of fame, had a pretty good income, uh, you know, uh, you, you could say Walter Block. Walter Block is very prolific. He's taught at a few different colleges. He's written tons of books, tons of articles, um, and enjoyed a, a life which was suited to him because he's such a, a person who lives in his brain. Uh, but Walter Block's also in his 70s. That was a very different time then when he was starting out. Today, it's almost like saying... Well, I'm going to be a professional writer. I'm going to be a rock star. Or I'm going to be an actor, an actress. Well, you, you might be that, but the, the idea that you're going to make it to that rock star level 
is about as likely as your band is going to make it to that rock star level. More likely, you're going to be scraping around, playing bars, and and trying to get somebody interested. I mean, that's the more likely scenario. So, if you if you read Charles Murray, he says one of the big problems in America is that way too many people go to undergraduate. So if that's true, if maybe only a half or a quarter of the people who even go to undergraduate, and those would be the people who generally throughout K through 12 showed a more intellectual aptitude, test scores, more of a disposition to study and serious reading and that sort of thing. I mean, you can identify who, who might be better suited. Uh, if only half or a quarter of current undergraduates should even be there, what would that mean then for graduate and PhD? I mean, that, that funnel should get even narrower. And um, it's, it's awfully tough out there. And you can ask any of our instructors this week, you know, they've, they've, m most of them are at, at universities and have, have made it in the sense that they have a, a full-time professorship and often tenure at a university. But it's, it's, not, it's not so easy to get there. So I, I have to side with Dr. Gary North, I think, in that YouTube debate. Well, that's fitting. We're in the Dr. Gary North Library right now. That's perfect. But uh, one last question here about this whole discussion we're having before we start feeding off into the Q&A portion of this. You know, when we talk about these colleges, we have this, the, the world has this fantasy that it's people who really care about their academics discussing ideas, and the people in this room and the people listening know that that's a fantasy. But even if it were, we've seen a lot of discussion this, this weekend in general of the power of ideas versus like the talk we just heard from great man Tho Bishop about great men leading history. Where do you fall for what we should do on these ideas, ideas changing the world versus men really changing the world? Well, it's easy to get caught up in intellectual exercises. Ideas do run in the world in the sense that even no ideas, ad hocism, is an idea unto itself. So you can't escape that. We're, we're always operating under some sort of at least implied uh, morality, some sort of at least implied premises uh, in any society, in any government. But when you say ideas run the world, uh, that's, that's tough to, because it, it, ideas are meaningless unless human beings animate them. So you know, we, need, we need imperfect humans out there like, like all of us in this room, pushing uh, in ways that Mises did in his life, certainly in Rothbard did in his life, a lot of people have done in their life, our great-grandparents did in their lives. I mean, it, really, ideas and the academy and, in, and the intellectual cadre probably ought to be a lot smaller than it is, especially now in the digital age. There's, there's too many people, there's too many, uh, too many chiefs and not enough Indians as we used to say in less politically correct times, uh, especially in the world of content. Everybody's a philosopher now. Um, and we spend so much time in social media, on podcasts, etc. And, and oftentimes, any new book or concept or discussion, you'd actually be, be better served by going back to one of the original masters who wrote about this you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 500 years ago. There really is nothing new under the sun in that sense other than technology. Um, technology is the only thing that really changes. Human nature doesn't change. The, the, the uh, avenues available to us to organize society, the, the political war side or the economic uh, cooperation side, that's the same basic 
question from 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago. It's just the technology has changed that. Um, and so we have, I think we, we suffer, especially in a digital age, I think we suffer from a lot of hubris. We live in a very hubristic age in that we're overconfident in our abilities. And we're, we're, we also have this, uh, this, this fantasy that we live in, in the fastest changing times or the most perilous or fraught times today. And that, uh, you know, we, you know, our grandparents and great grandparents lived in these kind of quieter, slower, easier times, not materially easier, but, but more placid times. And that, I think that's not true. I think that is uh, very much a, a hubris of our age. If when I think of my own great-grandmother, for example, born in the very late 1800s, so after Mises, uh, came to the U.S. from Germany, lived until the 1970s when I was little. So she, in her lifetime, her, her forearms, she could take an apple and break it in half. I mean, her forearms were unbelievable. She, she didn't believe in washing machines. She thought they didn't do a good job. So she had an old-fashioned bucket which had an angular washboard attached to it. It was, like a, it was metal, and it was an attachment, and you had soapy water, and then she thought that that, that, that worked better. Uh, she saw, she basically went from outdoor plumbing and no electricity. She saw electricity become commonplace. She saw the automobile replace the horse. She saw the radio spectrum. She saw television. She saw air travel go from nothing to the jet age. She saw space travel before she died because she made it to the 70s. Uh, you know, she saw telephony. I, you know, I, I, I think she probably lived in, an, in a, a life of greater change and upheaval than we are. And, you know, she was just tough. And I think we're not. And uh, there's something about the digital world that, that we want to imagine that everything is new now and the old rules, the old strictures don't apply and, and that there's not much to learn from these previous generations. And I think there's a lot of really bad blank slate thinking, even in liberal or libertarian circles. That's, that's a disaster for libertarianism as far as I'm concerned, this detachment, uh, this what we call the Luftmenschen, uh, the, you know, this airy-fairy uh, view of, of ideas and of intellectualism as divorced from the actual people the actual events, the actual history. Um, that's, I think that's a problem for us strategically and otherwise. Well, on that powerful note, I think we're ready to get into our Q&A portion of this. Um, I will say, I know we've had some phenomenal, long-winded philosophical debates here at the best week of the year. We are on a bit of a time constraint, so those of you who are ready to ask questions, let's aim for a quick question, because we don't, we don't have time to get through everybody, so if if you've got a longer-winded question, you may want to save that for another time. And Ugo has the microphone. Yes. Uh, it's something I've been working myself on, but maybe the panel could comment on the importance of building organizations outside of academia to support people who are engaging in intellectual endeavors. 
Yeah, academia is mostly captured. And so we have to build our own. That is true. And to the extent possible, we have to burn it down. So I think that's, that's step one. Uh, but the easiest avenue for that available to all of you is reading. I mean, all of you have at your fingertips basically the, all human history and all human knowledge and virtually every book ever written <laughs> in, a, in, a, in the deck of cards in your pocket called an iPhone. So that's a huge advantage both in terms of, of going around the gatekeepers who used to be that boring professor at the head of the class and, you know, what used to require access to a physical library. You know, our grandparents, they cherished books because books weren't that easy to get. You had to go get them and, you know, they weren't everywhere. You had to go to a library and borrow them. And maybe, you know, you go back not that long ago, a library might have a physical library might have, um, you know, it would have things like Milton Friedman's Free to Choose. It would have some Ayn Rand books, uh, a little bit of that kind of thing. But it wouldn't have any Rothbard or Mises, even 30 years ago when I was a kid, your average library. Um, and, that's, and that's all changed. So we have to weaponize that, I think, and use that. That's, that's um, very powerful for, for bottom-up thinking. But how we organize alternative institutions is, that's such a difficult question. It's, it's, it's above my pay grade because the alternative institution known as the Mises Institute was created by other people. And it's, it's a brutal question. I think that's job one. If that's job one beyond uh, our own, you know, individual families and survival. Um, I know you briefly mentioned how students were kind of falling into the trap because of their parents and acquiring debt and things like that. Do you have any advice for people who kind of fell into that trap and, you know, are kind of crippled by student loan debt and how to pay it off or what they should and should not do? Yeah, I mean, a lot, you know, a lot of parents push college on kids. And let's, let's face it, society did too. They, everyone said, well, student loan debt is good debt. Right, that's good debt, like a mortgage, because here's these charts that show uh, people with a bachelor's degree make this much more per year, which equals this much more per lifetime, and, and this and that. And, and it wasn't really true, because college tuition rose a lot faster than inflation, and the, the degrees themselves and the quality of the teaching the students decreased even as the price went up. So that's a bad deal. Uh, you know, so the first step would be not amassing any more. Um, you know, don't throw good money after bad. And, uh, you know, I, I would say just get out there in the world and, and start working, improving your worth. I mean, if you look at some of these, you know, even the terrible recession of 08, 09, which we may be facing something like that again very shortly, maybe something worse than that. I mean, if you think about it, an absolute calamity, is a 10 or 15 or 20 percent reduction in output. We can, we can use GDP as a proxy. And let's say a lot of companies get rid of 10 or 20 percent of their people. Well, okay, but all you have to do is not be in that 10 or 20 percent. I mean, there's, you know, that's, that's if, if you're self-selecting somewhat, if you even came to Mises U and know about Mises U, you know, you're already probably more academically inclined, more intellectually inclined than most people. So if you, if you, you know, that's the, the brain side. If, if you get in there at an employer and just just um, outshine your peers, I think 
you're going to be okay and just have the discipline. It's okay. I mean, a lot of people have student loan debt. It's nothing to be ashamed of. And, it, you know, just just roll up your sleeves and say, you know, I'm going to have some roommates maybe. Um, I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm just going to attack this when I'm young. Attack it first. And, and, um, and hopefully you've got good low interest rates from, the, you know, this, this uh, uh, Jerome Powell, Ben Bernanke regime. And, uh, you know, just do the best you can. For those of us who are listening and aren't sure exactly what we want to be doing, uh, what fields can we go into in order to affect the most change and to subvert this very mediocre spirit of the times? Yeah, that's a good question. And Ron used to get this all the time. I want to work in public policy, or I want to work at some libertarian think tank in D.C., or I want to, I want to be a lawyer so that I can help my state craft legislation, you know, like a, a job uh, promoting liberty, which is a very vague thing. Um, I think that that mindset's a mistake. I think your 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 focus should be on your own interests and aptitudes, because that's going to serve you a lot better. Um, a lot of people get pushed into professional tracks because maybe they're pretty smart, like most of you, and their parents say, "Oh, you get good grades. You know, you should go be a doctor, or a lawyer, or a professor." Because that's where people with good grades go, and then if you do well in those in those uh, up you know in those academic environments, then you get a good job, and you get you know. So there's there's plenty of of uh, lawyers, for example, who make three or four or five hundred thousand dollars a year, but they're very unhappy because it's you know it's a grind, and they don't much like it. So there's a lot of people who didn't get as good a grades, more like the B and C students, because they're they're not pushed into that type of of so-called profession. They, they end up starting a company or doing something, getting into sales or being entrepreneurial, and they make way more money, and they're way happier. Um, so when people say, what should I do uh, to try to affect change, I think the most important thing is to take care of yourself and make money. That's first and foremost. You always have your free time. Um, and, you know, stay out of running for office, that kind of thing. That's not for your 20s at all. And, you know, to the extent possible, stay away from debt. But the professions, you got to hand it to our friends on the left. Richard Hanea, Hane, I'm sorry if I'm not mispronouncing that, wrote an article recently on Substack, you know, why progressives always win. And one reason they always win is because they're just more willing to go be, a, you know, a teacher. Or they're more willing to get a low-paid job at the New Republic or the Washington Post. Or they're more willing to go get a low-paid job at a nonprofit or an NGO or whatever it is. Well... You know, I think we could broadly say more conservative folks tend to be worrying more about their families, their mortgages, their their jobs, their businesses, their careers, and you get really busy with all that stuff. And while you're asleep at the wheel, progressives are you know dominating K through 12. Progressives are dominating universities. Progressives are dominating Hollywood, media, academia, and so. You know, conservatives are so busy at work, and meanwhile, your kid comes back from K through 12, uh, or comes back from Disney, or comes back from the Star Wars franchise, or comes back from uh, pop music, and they're not your kid anymore. You lost them. Uh, this question somewhat relates to the last one. To what extent, if any, do you think that Austro libertarians like us should involve ourselves in electoral politics? Well, I think it's fine. Um, 
you have to look at it cost-benefit like anything else. The Mises Institute made a conscious decision years and years ago to not be activists, to not be about public policy, to be purely educational. The world needs that. It needs other things as well. You can, you can ask yourself whether you think that's a good strategy. Uh, I wouldn't run for office. It always amazes me when these, these, uh, these dreadful libertarian party people, these L people, these LP people um, who, who should be avoided, um, you know, say, well, I'm going to run. I ran for Congress. Well, okay, you didn't really run for Congress because you, you, nobody knows who you are. You're too young. You don't have any accomplishments or achievements in life. You don't have any money. You don't have any fundraising. Who are you to run for Congress or Senate or governor or something? So, you, you know, an office where you would be telling other people how to run their lives. You haven't reached that level in life. To, run for, to be a U.S. senator, you ought to be like in a top of, of all Americans in terms of achievement and ability and intelligence. That's a rarefied position. So, you know, your 20s shouldn't be about running for office. But if you do, and if you must, make it a really low-level position, a county supervisor, something where the entire race was going to cost you less than $10,000, where you're going to need fewer than 10,000 votes to win, something where you can maybe make a little bit of a difference locally and, and win. Don't run for anything you can't win. I hate that idea of, a, of an intellectual exercise. I know, Ron, it's a lot of people thought he couldn't win the presidency. That's probably true. But, you know, that was a different thing because there was a lot of attention brought to Ron and the ideas of, of, of others as a result of that. But, you know, run for something very small if you have to. I mean, a lot of, a lot of lo local races, you know, there's four or 5,000 votes cast total. So you only have to get maybe 2,500 people to, you know, vote for you. A lot of local races are nonpartisan, which gets you out of that, that horrible R&D trap. Um, so... I guess in general, I would say tend to your own business first and foremost, um, because I think that's going to be better for your life. You know, our friends on the left don't do that to be, you know, so there, that's, that's the flaw in my advice, I think. Hey, um, you mentioned earlier that there is an inflation of academics. Um, being here at the Mises Institute, which is dedicated to Austrian economics, I was wondering if you would agree that there's almost an inflation here of economics majors. And while it's obviously an academic institute, it would probably be good to eventually branch into other fields of study besides just economics and try to expand the movement in a sense. Well, I will say economics is one of the few bright spots in both the undergraduate and master's and PhD fields. Uh, econ majors are getting jobs in ways that, you know, psychology and business majors perhaps aren't. Uh, so econ's a bright spot if you want a job, if you want to work. And I'm, ta I'm not talking about academic jobs only. I'm talking about jobs, uh, you know, obviously the Fed's a big employer, but Amazon is one of the biggest employers of economists in this country. Now, that may be more behavioral. It may not be practicing what you think of as economics. You know, Amazon is, you know, a lot of that's behavioral stuff, like the person puts three things in their basket. How do you get them to put in the fourth thing, you know? Um, but economics is a bright spot. The Mises Institute has always been interdisciplinary. We've always promoted history, revisionist history, uh, law, philosophy, all these things. So we definitely need good people in all these areas. But, but um, econ's where you can get a job, so that's, you know, political science, eh, philosophy, the, you know, psychology, the, you know, even law, a very crowded field, very difficult. So, uh, you know, those are, 
You know, you can learn econ at the Mises Institute. You don't have to major in econ. You don't have to be in college. You don't have to do any of that stuff. But I agree. We need to be sending people out into, into multiple fields. And most of our master's program, people are in finance or banking or something other than they're not, they don't, they're not intending to go into, into uh, academic economics as a, as a paid profession. I think we have one more. Hugo? So uh, I have been having this question since the beginning of my fellowship, and I was looking to ask you, if you do you think like we Austrians or we Austro-Libertarians or we all the right kind of types, we're winning outside of the U.S.? I mean, in Argentina, there's a, a Rothbardian who is closer to win the presidency, while in other places such as in my country, uh, the very name libertarian is getting tarnished. So I was wondering to ask you, do you think like outside of the American sphere, our ideas are winning? How is it getting tarnished? How is the word libertarian being tarnished? Well, libertarians are not very well liked because they are pretty much all of the high officers in, in the Ecuadorian government and the Ecuadorian government is, is having a hard time in many areas. Yeah, this is the problem, of course, with universalism. And Mises wrote a lot about this. I mean, we can say there are some basic human principles which, we, which would be universally applicable, like control of your physical body, that sort of thing. But how those things manifest politically is, is very, very different. In Latin America, Central and South America, for example, so different culturally uh, in terms of the history of their governments. When we look at Europe, the concept of libertarianism is very, very different. When we look at Asia... The concept of property and self-ownership are very, very different. You know, that's, um, so I think we have to uh, you know, realize that, again, pie-in-the-sky fantasy land is no good. We have to be temporal. We have to be geographic. We have to understand where we are. But there, there's been some good things happening, I think, outside of the U.S. in the past 10 years. I think the... the the Euro European Union project is being challenged in healthy ways, in my opinion. I think the um, IMF and UN and uh, the, you know, the WHO and some of these organizations which attempt to harass us were, had a really difficult time projecting any sort of uh, authority during COVID. I think Brexit was healthy. Um, I think... Um, I think the Catalan movement is healthy. Uh, you know, you can disagree with the outcomes. I know Evelyn disagrees, but I think the Scottish national movement is healthy. Maybe it's for the wrong reasons. Maybe, you know, I don't have to live there, so it's easy for me to say that if that happened, you know, maybe Scots would be worse off in, in certain ways if they were teamed with Brussels rather than London. Um, but nonetheless, I, you know, the, the, there was so much political centralization in the 20th century and anything, any sort of centrifugal force that's breaking that up in the 21st, I think, is a happy and healthy uh, development, which we ought to cheer and which we ought to support. And that doesn't have to look like our ideal libertarian society in any country. I think it just has to look like smaller states, smaller polities, where you can have more, more choice, more selection, uh, more ability to move and vote with your feet. Um, it's not my place to tell... Uh, France, that it needs to have a robust gun culture like the American South. That's just not in the French DNA. They just don't get it. My sister-in-law's French. They just, you know, that's, that's just something that they're never going to be comfortable with. 
And, it, you know, is it my place as a universalist libertarian to tell them, you know, you guys, you know, the right to self-defense is, you know, is part and parcel of self-ownership, and you guys are crazy. You know, everybody in France should have uh, an AR-15. Maybe they should. And maybe that would have changed the Bataclan nightclub incident or something. I don't know. But I do know that... That that's a you know that sort of universalism is an awfully tough sell, and it's not how I want to spend my time. And um, I, I think the 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 idea of of a more decentralized world politically in the 21st century is the the great hope, the great hope of our times, because uh, the the centralization in the 20th didn't work too well. Any last thoughts, Connor? Well, you know, I actually have a question for you myself, a little more wind-down, easy question. For those listening at home, you just gave a talk on how we can dress professionally on a budget. I've got it. How would I do? Well, in, in, uh, in, you know, cowboy boots are part of professional dress in many places. So I'll take it. I, 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 think, I think that's it for us. All right. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. And in the meantime, you can find more content like this at Mises.org.